Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a science-led biopharmaceutical company dedicated to elevating conversations about biomarker testing to improve outcomes for advanced cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, Dr. Gore is joined by Dr. Mark Lemon for a conversation about cancer biology. Dr. Lemon is the David A. Sackler Professor of Pharmacology and co-director of the Cancer Biology Institute at Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Gore is director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. So, you know, when I was coming up in training in the late 80s and then as a young faculty member in the 90s, everyone was, you know, extolling how, you know, advances in genetics and molecular biology were going to transform cancer. And what I saw, and of course my, you know, my vision I think was rather limited or unimaginative. I saw a lot of genes being sequenced back in the day, very painstakingly. And it was very interesting to see how various genes were contributing to cancer. But I didn't get how that was really ever going to do anything. And it, has, has that promise borne fruit? I think it's, um, <clears throat> it's actually set the stage for, I think, what's going to be some serious revolutions. And they've already started in this area. So, so I, I, feel, I felt pretty much the same. You know, I, I grew up as a biochemist, kind of hidden in the the depths of the cold room, purifying proteins and um, just um, being interested in what proteins do in in life. And so for me, when I saw the sequencing uh, and the genetics really putting cancer in terms, really giving cancer molecular description so we could actually hook this particular molecule to, to this particular cancer or this particular change in a molecule to a cancer, that really got me excited to start thinking about doing the biochemistry of these. So, so that's really what pulled me away from being a, some would say, boring biochemist in some senses into trying to do um, cancer biology, which is you know, really what brought me to Yale, too. I, I'd been chair of biochemistry at Penn until a couple of years ago. Um, so, so, so I think in terms of cancer, those pieces of information, the the genes identified, the mutations identified are crucial because they're really giving you the nuts and bolts of what's gone wrong in the cancer cells, in the cancer systems, I should say. And that's where the clues are going to come, and they already are, for how to fix it. You know, if you look at the modern um, targeted cancer therapeutics, most of them are predicated on um, a particular genetic change, a mutation in the epidermal growth factor receptor, for example, which um, is changed in about you know, 10% of lung cancer cases and is targeted with drugs and se several examples of that sort. So I think it opened up the opportunity to really do some biochemistry of these of the cancer systems. Well, what percent of cancers have uh, kind of on switch, which is turned on, like you mentioned, this particular growth factor receptor, where if you had a drug that turned off the switch, uh, it would kind of be a, a simple concept. Are most cancers like that? No, they're not actually. Um, I, I would say. Well, actually, it depends. It depends, <laughs> of course, on how you how you would argue how you would argue. But I think what we've learned is that it's rare that 
the can a given cancer through its entire history is dependent on one on switch. You know, there are key oncogenes that are changed. RAS, of course, is important in a very large number of cancers. EGF receptor, you know, it was EGF receptor, interestingly, was the first cell surface marker associated with cancer. It was back in the 80s, actually, when, um, when that was found. And people spent many, many years trying to figure out ways of inhibiting it. And, and finally, those were approved cetuximab or Herbitux in, um, in, the, uh, in the 90s. But of course, what's happened with all of those examples is that once you start to attack that particular problem, that particular um, uh, target, resistance develops. And what that tells you is that it wasn't just that. There were other components or other components can take over. So it's really, it's not a single driver. And it, an analogy that I would bring in is it's it's almost as if so what's happened is the cells have, have gotten screwed up in some senses. And it's almost as if their um, control systems have just become such that they can career out of control. They a term for that is to lose robustness. So what happens if you start to hit one, like EGF receptor, then another will take over because the system is sufficiently plastic that um, that you'll select for changes that will enhance cell growth. So you could almost argue that treating the uh, attacking EGF receptor or one of these targets is a bit like attacking one of the symptoms rather than the causes. Hmm. And you end up in a game of whack-a-mole where if you hit EGF receptor, something else will come up, so you have to hit that. And if then something else will come up, and you have to hit that. So we're actually inside. It, it's a bit like if if your car is overheating and there's steam coming out of the hood, you could make the argument that attacking the EGF receptor is a bit like sealing up the hood so you don't see the steam anymore. We need, I think, in the next phase to really understand what's causing the ability of the system to be able to get out of control. Hmm. So when these uh, cells, these cancer cells, are are um driven by, a, seem to be driven by one of these mutations that we have a drug for, and then uh, some resistance mechanism emerges, do you think that are these cells sort of mutating as they go along, or were there cells in the mix that were in a minority population that had this other mutation, like a, like a resistant bacterium in a, in, a, in a culture that then grows out? Do, do we understand that at all? I, I don't think we completely understand it. There, there are different schools of thought about it, in, including the idea that these mutations, the, 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 the changes that allow resistance will emerge under the pressure of the initial drug, a bit like a bacterium situation. Um, there are cases where that seems to have been documented. It's also There's also a strong argument and quite a lot of data to suggest that the resistance mutations pre-exist in the population and they're selected out, if you like. That makes sense too. But there's also another set of observations that suggest that once you... It's interesting, if you take a, um, a cancer cell that is driven by... An oncogene, an oncogene product, um, and the idea would be that if you shut down that oncogene product, which might be EGF receptor, might be BCR able, might be ALK, the things that we have targeted therapeutics, if you actually look at those cells and um, and look at what how they respond to the drug, oftentimes they'll start to 
express the various things we associate with um, with resistance, almost as if that's a stress response. Um, so I think there's a, a, so I think there are a variety of different possible mechanisms, and we don't quite understand it at the moment. And that's a kind of frontier, I think, in this field just now. Hmm. So, am I getting from you that you are really advocating understanding sort of the underlying mutation maker or genetic unstabilizer uh, in, I, I at think the heart of these cancers? Or? That's a very important part of it. So I think there are two ways you can go about it. You could either, um, and, and Yale has a lot of great work in this arena, um, start thinking about how to um, stop the mutations from continuing, the mutation makers, if you like, um, which really, um, yeah, there are a variety of those. But D at the level of DNA repair would be one um, potential Achilles heel. So that's one aspect and could help. But I think another way of thinking about it is that rather than thinking about the individual drivers, potentially we could think about what controls the network, what controls the whole system. It's almost like um, if you imagine a particular set of messages in the internet will cause a particular event. Um, our targeted therapeutics are a bit like shutting down those messages. If instead we could start to think about how to uh, to fix the internet so it only really does what we want, that that would be a little bit more like that would be one another possibility thinking about controlling or or reining in the networks. To do that we really need to start broadening our view and start thinking about the cell the cancer cell and its environment as a very complex network. We're a long way away from this, but I think it's the kind of next frontier of cancer research, just asking how does how do growth control signals interrelate with metabolism, which is the really providing the, the energy source for the cell. Um, how um, are the proteins that control growth linked with the, um, the RNA messages, um, which is actually another area that's really quite untapped in terms of regulation? And how do all of those within the cell itself interrelate with the, uh, with the environment of the, um, of, the, of the cancer cell? And that's a really fundamental issue. There's a lot of feedback between the cancer cell and the environment in a general sense, um, depending upon where it is. But there's also, of course, the immune system, which is really a, an area of, um, of, of huge research here at Yale and, and, and elsewhere. So that kind of makes the system even bigger. So these are really big challenges. And it's like taking biochemistry and, and squaring it or cubing it or, um, or st sticking it to the power of four. I think that we've really got to understand the bio the, the biochemical, effectively, systems at this rather large level, which is actually what uh, we're trying to do, or that's the, a key goal of the Cancer Biology Institute is to have a, at Yale, is to have a component of that. So just to make that a little more uh, comprehensible for those mortals among us, um, I'm getting a picture of like a whole ecosystem or biome or something that you're seeing the cancer living in a host environment with an immune system and metabolism going on. And somehow uh, I, I think I'm hearing that you want to sort of find an Achilles heel that would sort of poison the ecosystem and make it go away. Is that right, or am I, mean, I not really that, understanding? I, either that or the complete opposite. Uh, so <laughs> because, because in, in, in a sense, um, you know, to, com to poison the ecosystem would probably be horribly toxic, toxic and would probably damage the ecosystem. Because the host would suffer. It, precisely. But I think another way, it, it, it's, 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 it, to, to simplify, I think 
if we could just get a sense of of what our um, key controllers um, we could potentially correct it um, or uh, provide um, alternative mechanisms of keeping the system in check um, that that those t that type of thing and I think the that may not be possible but the key is that we actually try to understand what are the regulatory principles of this network in some, in some senses. Well, once a, once a cancer develops, hasn't it already sort of, you know, plugged into, like, taken advantage of that ecosystem and sort of milked it to its own advantage where things, you know, seem like a little out of control or? Um, yeah, the, but out of control is the key. So if you could actually create more control in a sense that's what's being done in current immunotherapies I mean, so you could make so the, the current immunotherapies um that that seem to work the situation there is that the the tumor cell which is out of control from an immunological perspective is shutting down the immune system so it doesn't get attacked and um, and and in that sense, from the point of view of the immunological ecosystem, it is indeed out of control. And so the current immunotherapies are really blocking that out of controlness, if you like, so that the immune system can come and take care of these cells. And so that's the kind of does that make sense? That's the kind of sure. the, the 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 concept behind it is just trying to restore or strengthen the uh, elements that would return the system to being under control. And, but even there, uh, in the situations where the immune response is turned back on and tumors respond, um, not all patients are being cured. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there are going to be a very large number of ways of, of doing this, which is why we really need to keep going and to understand the, the aspects of the network in, in general. So let me give you another example of one that is really not tapped at all. Um, and and that and that is that um, that messenger RNAs, um, for example, really haven't been considered very much as a as a control system. Yet we know that those get very much shortened in cancer, and and so perhaps one could think of approach of just lengthening messenger RNAs, which would would restore a whole bunch of control systems. Uh, so that's that's one idea. For example, looking at the at the at the level of RNA transcripts. So there there are a variety of different untapped principles that we really need to think about. Well, this is uh, this is heady stuff and uh, super interesting. And right now, we're going to have to break this thought for a short medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about uh, cancer biology, ecosystems, and networks with Dr. Mark Lemon. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, working to pioneer targeted lung cancer treatments and advance knowledge of diagnostic testing. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year and nearly 200,000 nationwide. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis or 3D mammography is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. 
This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Mark Lemon, and we are discussing the field of cancer biology. You know, Mark, uh, prior to the break, you kind of overwhelmed me uh, with, uh, you know, um, with this vision of these complicated systems. I remember when I was studying biochemistry in uh, college um, and we were doing intermediary metabolism, um, I had uh, made this huge piece of paper that had all and where I drew all these different cycles and arrows, how this one fed into the other. And I was studying in the library at two in the morning for some exam and I was standing on a chair looking down at this thing and it was I wasn't even drug influenced on <laughs> honestly, maybe coffee. Um and it was this really exciting swirling orb thing about how like for a second I felt like I got it, which I probably didn't really understand it very well. And and this is kind of the image I'm getting about the way you're trying to put together cancer biology. In a sense, yeah, I have to say that when I was at college, I had them all pinned up in my college room actually. <laughs> for some reason I didn't didn't really None of the girls wanted to come back. Uh, uh, uh oh, <laughs> um, it's a family show, Mark. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's complex. I think, but I think the um, the uh, the stars are aligned in some senses for it because we do have access now through sequencing to a large num- amount of information, uh, and computationally these kinds of systems can be dealt with. So although these are too, I think the systems are too complex for us to just simply intuit them, but computational modeling of them um, can actually work, which um, if you think about it, we uh, that's the way we think about traffic, for example. Um, uh, We don't really understand how traffic flows, but we have good computer models for it. And I I think much is much the same is going to be true in the context of uh, of what's going on with growth control in cancer. We won't fully understand it in the sense that we can draw out a pathway when we're a college kid, but we can actually do what ifs and so forth with a computer model. And I think I think that's the level at which we'll have to understand it, given our, our feeble minds. Hmm. So, how you've been engaged um, since you've been here in in building a, an institute in cancer biology, and and what's your concept of how? Or, or what what does that mean, really? I mean, and what's your concept of how an institute, which is going to have several scientists, right? Mm. Um, uh, what's that going to do to sort of crack these systems? Yeah, I think it's a matter of combining disciplines. So uh, we have great cancer research here at Yale, um, uh, at, which is patient proximal working on um, so, so, so the clinical aspects of cancer research here at Yale are fantastic. That then links very nicely to a large number of of different arenas of of, of more basic cancer research, from um, cancer cell biology to immunology, etc. And I think, in a sense, going back to what we were discussing at the beginning, what we need to to do is just. Um, take that to a slightly higher resolution to start to think about what are the interactions between the molecules and so forth. It's almost an engineering problem in some senses. A, a, chem, a 
And so when you start thinking about it in that way, you realize that one needs to combine disciplines. We need to have people who can think about the systems from an engineering perspective, uh, talking to the cancer biologists. Uh, we, we need to have chemists uh, also involved in that conversation. So. So I think what the Cancer Biology Institute is really all about, we're out on the West Campus at Yale, it's about linking other elements of, of research at Yale to uh, what's going on um, proximal to the cancer clinics, I suppose. So it's really that kind of, I guess it's a clearinghouse for different disciplines. Yeah, we can't just do biology, we can't just do chemistry, we can't just do engineering to solve this problem. We need to involve all of those components. Hmm. And is, is part of that going to be this computer, computational, um, piece. Yeah, we um, we have a very strong interaction actually right across the quad at, uh, at the at the uh, on the west campus. There's a systems biology institute which um, it, uh, which does exactly that. It's interested in in these complex systems using computer computer models and so forth. So so yeah, absolutely, that will be a key part of it. And do you think that uh, as an institute, uh, and I think you're going to have a twelve or fourteen yeah, scientists, 12, is yeah. that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so is everybody going to be working on sort of uh, communal problems? Like, are you going to have everybody working on this particular protein or that particular system? Or is how's that going to work? No, no, I think it's really about control control principles. I mean, the, the bottom line is that when you think about a cancer cell sitting in its environment, um, the way it's controlled um, is through its signaling, through its metabolism for production of energy supply through its interactions with the immune system through the control of its gene expression um, you know all of those basic things that we think about in biology so we'll have a um, a faculty member a research group associated probably with each of those arenas so what each member will be doing is thinking about control of cancer cells so that's the that's the problem uh, c uh, control uh, how to um, bring cancer cells back under control I suppose so that's the problem but just doing it from a different perspective but all of the perspectives interlock because you can't think about the metabolism without thinking about the signaling you can't think about the signaling without thinking about gene expression so they'll all interlock at that level but but at the moment those disciplines just are to some extent um, separated and so the idea is by bringing people who are interested in each of those disciplines together to think about cancer Answer that will create a kind of, I hope, a holistic view of how the the uh, the cancer cell interacts with its environment and what are its weak points that we can attack. Fascinating. Can you tell me a, an anecdote at all about something that you're working on right now that's uh, particularly making you excited? Yeah, I, I mean, going back to the beginning, actually, I. Um, as I said, I started off as a biochemist, just trying to understand how molecules work. And you know, what we do as biochemists is study how fast reactions go, how, what are the mechanisms of these reactions, things that most people are not that excited about. Um, and um, that, there, there's a particular example where we were working on a, a kinase, um, which is a, a type of enzyme that, that sticks um, phosphate groups onto tyrosines and amino acid in, in proteins. And which sounds really boring, but it's really important, yeah, right? Yeah, which, which is a really key reaction. In, in, <laughs> that, in, I mean, that's it, like an on-off switch, it, right? It's indeed an on-off switch. But, but and what we were doing with this enzyme in trying to understand it was measuring what's called, um, and wait for it, the KM for ATP. Which, uh -oh. is not, which is not something that usually, uh, it's the kind of thing that undergoes 
graduates fear for the most part. Yeah, some some big equation. It has a it has a dividing line in it and a bunch of uh, multipliers and stuff, right? Right. Anyway, so we measured it, which you, know, you you ask a graduate student to do that, and they'll often groan and <laughs> roll their eyes. In, indeed. And so we were measuring that for a couple of different variants of this kinase um, called ALK. Um, anaplastic lymphoma kinase, which is is interesting, and the reason one of the reasons we got into it was we know that it's mutated in about ten to fifteen percent of 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 kids with neuroblastoma, and it's mm. a it's a driver um, mutation in neuroblastoma, and, and indeed is being targeted with several um, ALK inhibitors at the moment. I think which are actually looking very promising. But the key question that we were having meetings that us biochemists were having meetings with clinicians. And the uh, one of the issues that arose is that one mutation um, brings with it susceptibility to one of the drugs that are be currently being tried for, for targeting ALK. And another mutation brings with it resistance to that drug. So hmm. why? And just understanding this from a clinical perspective is key. And the answer seems to be that one... Um, it increases the KM for ATP, uh, makes ATP bind more weakly, and the other does the opposite. And th th so it was really the KM for ATP is the issue that defines resistance or sensitivity to this particular drug that's been used in kids with neuroblastoma. And those that have the higher ATP, high, the higher KM for ATP actually do, to some extent, respond. So so that, that was actually one of my most exciting days in biochemistry, is talking to a clinician who's running a clinical trial uh, about KMs for ATP, something I never thought that I would do, and and ha having her rewrite re, uh, the trial in terms of concentration of drug to overcome this problem. So so really, the, the nitty gritty biochemistry plugging into making decisions about how to move forward in clinical trials. I think that's what this is. A lot of this is about at the moment. Well, you know, that's that's really interesting. You say that, Mark, because uh, I review, you know, a lot of clinical trials, both. Uh, you know, in some of my capacities here, but also, uh, you know, when I'm reviewing grants and so on for the National Cancer Institute. And um, I think that a lot of uh, clinical scientists and pharma companies uh, often see a target, looks appealing, they have a drug. And, uh, you know, the simplistic thing is, well, I'm going to, you know, use this drug to turn off the switch. And there's very little consideration uh, in, in my experience, in terms of really looking at the biochemistry, looking at what concentrations are going to be really useful, and whether this is even a feasible concept, even though you've got a target and you've got a drug, that doesn't mean that uh, A plus B is going to give you the outcome, especially in a complex system like a human being. Absolutely, and, and you know, I've I've learned an enormous amount from looking at how this has moved forward recently. There's a particular example of um, in, uh, inhibitors for BRAF in melanoma, which has really, I think, taught us all huge lessons. And so th the idea there is that in melanoma, which was a a um, an untreatable disease not so long ago, very recently, yeah. right? Indeed, there there are now a particular mutation in another one of these kinases that sticks phosphates on things. Not in, in this case, it's a serine threonine kinase, a different amino acid from the tyrosines. But there's a particular mutation that's found in the numbers vary. I think it's about fifty percent of melanomas will have this mutation, and um, and inhibitors of a BRAF were developed, and then they have. Um, substantial value and really right, can transform people's lives and ag again resistance is, a, is an issue down the road but what was very interesting with these was that when they were applied 
to patients. Um, patients in one particular setting would have these inhibitors, which are supposedly shutting off the system. Would they would it would actually activate the system instead mm. in in the context of having an activated RAS or something else too? It's, it's the so-called RAF paradox that by inhibiting this pathway, you can actually elevate growth signaling effectively. Now that's complex and really makes you think. And um, and it's clear that the only way to understand that is from the point of view of of, of the networks. And what that's done in uh, and I'd like to give a plug for this actually in some senses is enhanced this approach of of so-called reverse translational research where um, understanding what happens with a drug in the clinic then really informs the basic science. So you know, we didn't really understand how RAF does its signaling in the cell before this, but st trying to understand this weird phenomenon in weird and important and problematic phenomenon in the clinic has really taught us a huge amount about how that particular signaling aspect works. And it ends up, of course, like everything else, being way more complicated than we expected. Mm. But the upshot of that is that now with that enhanced understanding, we can be much more sophisticated about the drugs that we'll apply at that system. And that, so the reverse translational research back to the lab is now coming back forward to the clinic or coming forward to the clinic. And, um, and, and, and so I think that, yeah, that this interplay between the basic mechanistic biochemistry, the basic science, and the clinical aspect is important. And that works both ways. I think the clinicians really um, do well to, to talk a lot to the basic scientists, but I think it's incredibly important that the basic scientists actually really think about what's going on in the clinic and really engage in the clinical questions and problems. Dr. Mark Lemon is the David A. Sackler Professor of Pharmacology and co-director of the Cancer Biology Institute at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.